Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Tracy Ray from the employment law firm of Baron Lehman. Tracy says that OPB sponsorship is a great way to support the community and connect with Baron Liebman's clients. From the Gert Boyle studio at OPB, this is Think Out Loud. I'm Dave Miller. When you look at a painting in a gallery or a museum, you can't always tell how much is accurate and how much is the product of artistic license. A new study from Oregon State University shows that some 19th century landscape paintings are accurate enough to aid scientists who are researching historical forest systems. Dana Warren is an associate professor uh, in the Department of Forest Ecosystems and Society at Oregon State University. Peter Betjeman is an English professor and the Patricia Vallian Reeser Executive Director of Arts and Education. They collaborated on this study and they join us now with more details on how art and science can talk to each other. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thank you so much. Peter Betjeman, first, I understand that this collaboration happened, it seems, at least starting by chance. How did the two of you first get talking about art and historical ecology? Yeah, so I met Dana because our kids were in preschool together. And I I do sort of think that transdisciplinary work often has um, a lot of moments of chance that that drive a particular collaboration. And this is a great example of that. You know, and in just in the course of chit chat, um, Dana was telling me about his interest in historical ecology. Um, I needed him to define sort of the parameters of you know, of, of what that even meant. And, um, and he mentioned to me that he had always imagined that paintings or uh, sketches could be a potential tool for historical ecologists, but that these questions of bias and, um, and, you know, the, the, the way in which representation is not photographic in a painting were always, um, you know, prevented uh, ecologists from from uh, drawing on that resource. And I said to him, I remember it very clearly, I said to him, well, I think an art historian can help you pick out the pieces that might be of, of value to you. And it was um, in that moment that the collaboration was born, it, it ended up involving a much larger transdisciplinary team across multiple institutions. And um, we've been at it for a few years now. Well, Dana Warren, what was it like to, to hear that, um, that, that there were experts who could actually help you find the, the helpful pieces? Yeah, it, it was uh, it was very serendipitous, as as Peter said, moment. It was great. I had this is an idea I had sort of been churning on since graduate school. And I took it to some, you know, senior professors and you know, I kind of pitched it and there said, oh, it's artistic license. You can't trust it. So I kind of tucked it in my back pocket. And I definitely distinctly remember Peter saying um, the the line that I remember at one point, it was either that meeting or a subsequent one. Where he said, well, if you just do your art history homework, you can absolutely figure out which ones you can. So, <laughs> it's like a so challenge. I, it, it was. It was. And then it took us probably five or six years before we actually were able to come together and get the funding. Um from National Science Foundation to to do this work, um, but yeah, it, it was it was a really it was a fun moment because it, it was something that had been gnawing at me for a while, and to have Peter be like, "Oh, I can help you with that." Well, so but Peter also mentioned a, a question that 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 I had, which is, you know, what is historical ecology? What is your field of study? Uh, well, so I I do a, a number of I wear a number of hats, but the field of historical ecology is essentially trying to understand. Um, 
ecological conditions in the past. And I, I think a nice sort of salient example for uh, for the Willamette Valley is something like historic fire regimes. So trying to understand how frequently did fire of what severity occur in this region, and that's really important because it set the stage for the communities that were that were present or dominated the landscape uh, prior to, um, to to European expansion into the region, and and sort of understanding those historic conditions. Or um, in the case of, of our study, it was trying to understand what did forests look like before industrialization uh, developed in the eastern U.S. And that was interesting and I think important because that was uh, since industrialization, we've lost American elm. We've lost American chestnut um, from those forests. And so we have potentially information about what these systems look like before those keystone species have been lost. So, Peter, I, it's time for some art history here. Um, accuracy, in quotes, is not always a subject of, of an artistic movement. How big a role did it play in broadly in, in 19th century landscape painting? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, the answer in effect is that um, in the middle of the 19th century, a movement towards plein air painting really became a dominant feature of painterly practice. So plein air, meaning, meaning painting uh, on site, pa painting outside. Painting on site, pa taking a stool and an easel out into the forest, literally setting yourself down in front of a scene and um, either sketching or in some cases painting with oils what what you saw and you know prior to this moment and we're really talking here about the period between 1820 and 1860 prior to this moment artists were encouraged to copy to make copies of greco-roman sculptures some of the academies in new york maintained extensive collections of reproductions of greco-roman sculptures for this pedagogical purpose, or artists were encouraged to sit down in front of, you know, paintings by old masters and attempt to faithfully reproduce them. That all changed actually quite quickly um, in the 1840s. And there's some really interesting circumstantial reasons that that happened. One of them, Dana loves this example, so I think he'll be pleased that I'm including it. Um, <laughs> was the invention of the tin paint tube in 1843, which allowed artists to carry pre-mixed pigments into the field. Um, certainly one of the other factors um, driving uh, this development, uh, uh, steamship travel for artists based in New York. It was possible to hop on a steamboat and disembark at any number of ports of call up the Hudson River, one of which was uh, Catskill, New York offering um you know access to the catskill mountains and and really majestic scenes in um in that region and so all of this kind of comes together um to really transform uh artistic practice uh in the era you focused on a painter named asher durand for this study who was he and and why was he helpful for this particular inquiry you know, this seems like a great moment to demonstrate your art historical chops. <laughs> uh, can I well, can I just interrupt to say, did, so the two of you didn't really know each other before this collaboration, because it seems like you now have real familiarity. We had we had crossed paths via our kids, as as Peter mentioned, but but hadn't really connected or hung out until um, 
and, until we started to really get into this. So uh, now you're uh, our, our academic buddies as well. Yes. Oh, totally. Okay. Yep. So, so Dana, so Dana, back to Asher Durand. What have you oh, learned so, about him? Well, so one of the reasons Asher Durand was particularly good is that the art historical research requires digging into what those individuals thought. Um, and Durand was great because he wrote so much of it down. So uh, Durand, uh, and he was he was very influential. He was the head of the Peter's going to correct me on this, the American School of Design. National Academy of Design. National Academy of Design. Um, and so he was very influential, and he was writing at a time when there was this expansion in people's interest in um, in doing this plein air painting. And so he wrote these letters to a hypothetical student um, in, uh, in a periodical called The Crayon uh, at the time where he explicitly espoused the importance of painting true to nature and painting outside. And so those at least provided the basis for us to be able to, to begin to dig into, we'll, we'll have some confidence that if he's espousing the importance of painting close to nature, then we can be fairly confident that at least some of his paintings are actually accurate representations of nature. And so that was the, really the art history homework part that, that I, that, that made Duran particularly strong. Hmm. How's that, Peter? That was that was perfect, um, Dana. And I, I would just add that um, in addition to being a proponent of um, plein air painting, um, Durand was uh, such an influence on other artists, both through his writing and through his direct mentorship, including, you know, Frederick Church. Um, that you can really, by beginning with Duran, which was a choice that we had to made, make to limit this study to sort of one central artist, but, but by beginning with this artist um, who really launched a, a movement, um, we felt that it would then be possible for other scholars to um, attempt the same methodology on his protégés. Dana, are there Northwest artists that you can imagine either yourself or, or other ecologists turning to going forward to to help with actual important questions? Yes. I mean, I, I don't know the names, but certainly I think, I mean, this is this is what we would love to do is, is think, um, especially there are the artists, a number of these artists um, that came from what's sort of known as the Hudson River School, uh, would a number of them espouse this philosophy of painting close to nature. So a number of them accompanied uh, expeditions with um, American expeditions exploring Louisiana Purchase, which included coming up through the Hudson Valley. And so I think, or sorry, up through the Willamette Valley. And so I think there's great potential to look at, at some of those early paintings. And people have done that. Um, they've certainly done that anecdotally. I've, I've, you know, I've seen it in in lectures, and they're very compelling pictures of what the Lamette Valley looked like under a different historic fire regime. Um, and what what we're hoping this this work that we did does is is it gives us a pathway to turn those from anecdotes into um, into more codified data, valuable uh, images that that we can really lean on more explicitly. And 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 one of the things that I've actually learned from Peter is. Um, you really do need to look at each of those individual artists. So I think there there is great potential to do that with artists who've been painting in the in the Willamette Valley and across Oregon. There's a number of paintings of of Mount Hood, for example. Um, uh, but when this started, I was like, oh well, we can just you know use all the artists from the Hudson River School. And then Peter was like, oh god, no, like we can't even use artists. You know, we need to pick a specific time. 
um, time period as well as a specific artist that we kind of unpack. And um, so I, I think there is really great potential. And this is my hope is that this paper that we wrote and the work that we're doing really inspires other people to go out and start to dig into this because it's definitely more than any two people in a collaboration can do. Peter, we just have about a, a minute left, but we've been talking about what art can contribute to historical ecology, but what about the reverse? Yeah, I love I love that question, Dave. And the reason I love it is because the corpus of work that we looked at is, you know, a, a corpus that I've been looking at for a long time. And I learned to see it completely anew. When, you know, just being in these meetings, um, having to, you know, feverishly Google terms that my science colleagues were using as they're talking about bryophyte mats and epiphytes and epicormic rearticulations, and then seeing those features in paintings that for me, um, you know, I had been trained often to see as allegories or as express expressions of a kind of cultural zeitgeist or of a um, of a, a particular uh, mood in the New York art community in a given era. To see those in terms of the details um, that you know the artists were paying attention to, to hone in detail after detail, just. A, made me realize what incredible observers these artists were, hmm. and then B, just transformed the paintings for me permanently. Huh. Peter Betjeman and Dana Warren, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Peter Betjeman is a professor of English and the Patricia Valian Reeser, executive director of arts and education at Oregon State University. Dana Warren is an associate professor in the Department of Forest Ecosystems and Society at OSU. We end today with the end of an era. After months of speculation and anxiety among Blazers fans, it is now officially official. Damian Lillard is being traded to the Milwaukee Bucks. We asked for your memories of his time as a Blazer. Here are some of the voicemails that came in, along with an instrumental track from Dame himself. Dame Dallas did to it. Hi, this is Leanne, and I am very sad that Damien is leaving Portland, and my son attended a few of his summer basketball camps when he was probably six or seven. My son is now 17, and we are so, so sad that he's leaving, and and I remember the first time I went and saw Damien leading these kids, I could not believe it. He was telling them about his morning. And he said, he, he told the kids what time he woke up, that he had already completed his workout because that was his responsibility. And then he came to teach them and he was teaching them about taking care of your work first and being disciplined. And he was such an unbelievable role model, so calm, positive, but also very direct in being responsible and I just think that he is such, again, a role model for parents, frankly, and kids. And we were just crossing our fingers that the team would be sold to Phil Knight because we somehow thought there might then be a way where Damien would have the tools he needed to stay. So we're very, very, very sad to see Damien go and hope maybe at the last minute he won't. Hey there, this is Garrett from Portland, Oregon. And I just want to say my favorite memory of Damian Lillard was game six against the Houston Rockets 
when he hit that shot and said this is the century mile for the first time in what 12 years it's been that long can't wait for that to happen again happy that he's going to be going to a team where he can compete thank you so much rip city Hi there, I'm Joe Crenshaw from Oregon City, and Damon has meant the world to us, my family. I've taken my young grandchildren, friends, cohorts to see the games, as many games as I could. And for a while, I was a season ticket holder, but I always enjoyed watching him. He always played with the fury, as if everything depended on how well he played. He was a person that came from our hometown, Oakland, California. And I just think that he is what we will miss by the game because the enthusiasm that he showed and the the support that he gave Portland in the community was absolutely fantastic. Good luck, Damon. We hope to see you again. And maybe if I get to Milwaukee, I'll stop in to see you. My name is Connor Brown. I'm from Portland, and Damian Lillard meant so much to me as a Blazer. Uh, Basketball is one of the biggest things that I shared in common with my dad, uh, who passed away from cancer two years ago. And uh, one of my all-time favorite memories with him is watching the Blazers' playoff series against OKC in 2019. When Dame hit that buzzer beater, uh, just screaming and jumping around in his living room together, watching it live on TV. I, it's one of my all-time favorite memories with my my uh, deceased father, and uh, it meant the world to me. I'm getting choked up just thinking about it. I mean, it really was a really special moment, and Dame gave us so many of those throughout his career here as a Blazer. He'll always be my absolute favorite trailblazer. Love him to death. Um, love you, Dame. Thanks to everybody who called in. Tomorrow on the show, we're going to talk with Erica Hayasaki about her book, Somewhere Sisters. It's a story of twin sisters, one who remained in her native Vietnam, one who was adopted by a white family in the U.S., and their eventual complicated reunion. Thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Dave Miller. Have a great day. Think Out Loud is supported by Steve and Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, Ray and Marilyn Johnson, and the Susan Hammer Fund of the Oregon Community Foundation.